This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Here in Melbourne, it's radio therapy time. I'm Panel Beater and I'm joined in the studio with two illustrious Medicos as co-hosts this morning. First of all, Dr. Sharma, good morning. Good morning. Illustrious, really? Illustrious, yeah. Yeah, illustrious. Um, And also, after quite an absence from radiotherapy, so listeners have been hanging around the show for a while, we'll be recalling Hawkeye. Welcome back, Hawkeye. It is wonderful to be back, panel beater. It's like, it's as if you've never been away. Oh, look, I, I've been uh, getting re-educa- re-educated on the North American West Coast now for three years, and uh, I'm back. Uh, you know, did, said did a few you get... things last time I was on that you know some people took umbrage uh, to. So you know, and they've all been addressed, have they? Oh, uh, look, I got kicked out of the re-education course. Did you? Uh, yeah, I think I said some things that some people took umbrage to. Good grief. <laughs> Did you stream us in at all while you were gone? Yeah, yeah. Look, the, I think uh, being overseas these days is uh, is um, uh, much easier than it used to be. You, you, uh, so where we were, we actually were listening to Australians uh, on the radio in our house streaming and heading down there, heading uh, downstairs, getting in the car and listening to Australians on the local radio as well. It was pretty unusual hearing about, uh, hearing about traffic on Punt Road and then, <laughs> then hearing about local traffic uh, with the same voice. How about that? As far as the uh, the work went, how was that? Uh, look, I think uh, so. I was in Canada. Canada's a, a different place. Uh, Canadians are even more different, um, <laughs> and uh, it's uh, yeah, it was great. What sort of hospital experience. was it? So, children's hospital, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and uh, yeah, it's uh, look, children's medicine is uh, is wonderful. Uh, it's what I love, and um, uh, yeah, it was a, a really great experience for me and my family. Any any dramatic surprises on the professional front in terms of the way things were done? Oh, look, you can't get good coffee in the hospitals in, uh, in Canada. <laughs> that's it's the professional just, front, is it? it, it is that's a huge determinant of the quality of doctor's work. It's so just terrible. It. I mean, they do walk around all day with these these kind of flasks of, like, of awful coffee. Uh, <laughs> and they're like, you know, it's like it's human fuel and they need a refill. They just constantly go back to the, you know, the... Tim Hortons or Starbucks or whatever, fill fill up these you know these gallon drum kind of flasks and walk around the hospital all day sipping. Who'd have thunk it? Who'd have thunk it? Before we just move on from that, Doctor Sharma, you've been um, gallivanting around as well, right? Yeah, a little bit. I've been in Italy recently filming for a TV show as part of my magic performance. Uh, so, at Trio Gentlemen in Deceit was asked to be on this. Italian TV show, Tusi Cavallis, and, uh, you know, we did our bit and uh, went, went pretty well. It was interesting. Is there any way at all we're going to get to see it in these here parts? Uh, yeah, when uh, when it gets released uh, in, I think, in about September or something like that, we'll, you'll see the footage. And uh, on one hand, it is our you know, fairly kind of standard act that's gone viral, which is the one that gets requested uh, internationally. On the other hand, the way it played out, I can't say too much, uh, but the way it played out uh, was interesting, to say the least. A mm. good TV, is it, is you what doing, I can say. Do we put air quotes around interesting? Yeah, I, yeah I, I'm going to do it right now. Yeah, <laughs> air quotes. That's great radio, guys. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. A very good visual. 
Uh, look, I'd love to keep that talk going, but we've got a huge show ahead of us. Um, our first guest will be coming in uh, shortly after our news. Uh, we'll be talking with Associate Professor Petra Steger of Deakin. Um, Professor Steger's been working on a research project with one of the consequences being the, pro- the uh, development of an app to support people. Um, we've got some concerns about their alcohol consumption. Um, and Hawkeye, you've got a guest coming in. What can you tell us? I do, I do. I have a, uh, I have uh, someone who's a part of our uh, local South Sudanese uh, community and who has made uh, made some uh, made a great impact in uh, in an area of medical science. Uh, I think it's uh, it's important that uh, we tell some tell some good stories to counter some of the bloody terrible stories. Uh, although I'm currently suffering from a Schadenfreude overdose after last night's by elections, oh, it's good good to see racists kicked in the teeth in public. <laughs> More on the, more to come. Thanks for that. But first, it'll be the news. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. No pills gonna cure my ill. I got a bad case of loving you. Well, well, well. News. Well, plenty to choose from. Might just um steer away from the by-election for the moment, as tempting as it might be. Um, but pretty hard to have avoided all the shebang around the My Health record that's been going on. Um, we've been hearing that left, right and centre in the news. Although, having said that, I've got a, one interesting anecdote to share with you about that. So this My Health record, guys, it's a, de- it's a centralised database for sharing health information. In a nutshell, that is what it is. Aspirationally, the idea is that it's a database system that's available to any healthcare professional mm-hmm. so that uh, patients who are um, engaging with a healthcare professional have their information and their medical history retrievable uh, for the consultation or advice that they're seeking. Um, there's, Although it's been heavily in the news in recent times, um, it's got a little bit of a history. Um, initially set up, I gather, in 2012. And at that time, it was an opt-in system. More recently, um, and what's brought it into the news, is the decision to treat it as an opt-out. So if we haven't um, opt-out by October 15, a record will automatically be created for us. Let's just start with some gut instinctive reactions from the medical profession. Dr. Sharma, GP, what's, what's going on there? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting you ask for me for my perspective because the truth is every doctor in this country has two perspectives, first as a doctor and as a patient. And I think the one thing that really worries me is that as a patient, I'm wrapping my head around this My Health Records thing. As a doctor, my understanding of My Health Records is even less than it is as a patient. And I think actually that's that's quite worrying, well, that I don't know what it's going to look like in real time. My gut instincts, if you're asking, uh, is that an opt-out system where people don't really understand what's going on, neither health professionals nor patients, that's a huge concern. I understand the aspirations are actually you know, quite good and noble, but there are so many questions being asked and uh, quite a bit of backtracking being done by the government and uh, re- assurances and reassurances being given that really give uh, you know give me the uh, the heebie-jeebies you know, with the, when it comes to 
the idea of this being something that people are going to have to opt out of and that we're all by default going to have. Are they are the people you're talking to, are the clients, patients, are they asking you directly what, what, what you reckon? Yeah, um, in fact, the... So I've been out of the country for for the last two weeks, but oh, yeah. but but I mean, it's, in that time, I've learned a lot, reading a lot on Twitter, what's going on. But earlier than that, the kind of questions that I was being asked by patients were incredibly pertinent, very well founded. Things that I did not have an answer for uh, at the time. Things like you know, who will have access? Are there levels of, of access I'll be able to control? And uh, you know, on one hand, you know, it's almost like I've got a few talking points to say. Well, yeah, you can, you know, there's. Uh, You'll know if someone's accessing it, and there's certain levels of access you can you can you can give. And yet, even in the last two weeks, I've discovered that there are kind of counterpoints to that. That you know, in emergency situations, anyone can access it, and uh, and just because you know that your records are being accessed doesn't mean you're going to know who's accessing it. There's a myriad of issues at play here. Yeah. Yeah. Hawkeye. Yeah, look, I think I think a lot of the uh, the arguments against this kind of come down to uh, generic, you know, uh, fairly uh, uh, so fairly generic privacy concerns that come up every time there's discussion of a centralised database of any kind, um, and you know, and I think the I think they're you know very valid. I think our uh, our uh, our uh, Government doesn't have a great record of implementing kind of mass information technology uh, interventions, whether it be kind of public transport ticketing or uh, or NBN or you know, other yeah. other uh, large things. But um, the thing that the, the the first image that comes up in my head is is uh, and this is absolutely kind of a personal uh, kind of uh, anecdote. Uh, just is that that experience of a of a. Uh, of the medical and of the health staff in an emergency department who are, who have a patient who, for whatever reason, can't actually tell, can't give their medical history, and you're you're completely stuck. Mm. You you know, imagine if any if any listeners are out there who are actually taking any regular medications, imagine that the one or two people in your life who know what those medications are, who have access to a list of those medications, imagine that they've gone overseas. Yeah. Right? And then imagine that you've landed in an emergency department without, you know, without access to uh, without access to you know, a way it's, you can't communicate. Yeah. Right? The doctors and nurses, others dealing with you in that emergency situation are lost. There may be a life-threatening medication interaction that would be avoided if they had access to a list like that. And, and, you know, and the papers, I think, have been full of similar kinds of anecdotes on both sides. Yeah. So that, the scenario that you're um, presenting there is what's happening now without the database. Is there evidence to suggest that there's a problem? Or that needs to be fixed. That the database is going to be fi- fixing. Oh, look, I think I think that there, you know, I think uh, there are there is certainly there are certainly you know many situations every day throughout Melbourne of you know of patients whose normal medications that have been transcribed on their arrival in hospital, perhaps at their GP clinic, you know. Uh, at a new GP clinic, perhaps, perhaps are not you know are not accurate, and it takes days, yeah, days, right. perhaps weeks, and sometimes in hospitals to actually give the right thing to the patient. Yeah, and uh, on one hand, Hawkeye, I think that speaks to the strength of the aspirations of the system. That if you had everything uh, up to date and comprehensively updated, you know, you would 
would know what's going on in emergency situations. On the other hand, this is not a system that's automatically going to be updating these things. This is something that needs to be manually kind of updated. There's nothing. There's there's nothing kind of automatic uh, about this. So we don't really know if it's going to look uh, like this perfect system that we're all you know kind of um, idealizing in our heads, and that's the concern. So. If we kind of had that reassurance, I think we'd all feel you know much better about it. But the thing is, we just don't know what this is going to look like, and it's already happening. And once the, you know the cat's out of the bag with information, you know you lose money for a bank account. There's ways to get that back. When information's out, you know your sexual history, your yeah. you know terminations of pregnancy, whatever else, like that, that's it. Like the info's gone. Well, and some people are saying that it can actually serve as a deterrent for people who have health issues that intersect with the law. So if you've had a, an addiction of some sort, um, you may be reluctant to have that on a database, which, if I understand correctly, um, other authorities will have access to without what they would currently require to go through to get access to that information. And think about how that impacts on the quality of care that we can provide as doctors. If patients are being reticent, and quite rightly so, their fears might be well-founded, uh, how does that impact the, the history taking in, hence you know, the management that I can pr- provide uh, to them? So yeah. it's, a, it's a huge problem. The researcher in me... Though, and you talk about having these two perspectives and relationships to the issue. The researcher in me, if I were an epidemiologist, imagine having all of that that population data uh, in there about medications taken that you could then parse by profile mm. of gender, of age, of mm. a, a whole range of things. Epidemiologists, I imagine, uh, would love the rich data available, oh. wouldn't they? Absolutely. I think, though, they would be somewhat confused by the fact that the population of Victoria would, on the health record at least, appear to be doubled from by all the Russian bots. <laughs> but uh, the Russian bots participated. <laughs> the bots. Yes, yeah. indeed. Yep. And, of course, epidemiologists are not the only one who are actually uh, excited. Uh, private health insurers oh. have been foaming at the mouth. They've put out public statements saying, this is data we really need. And, uh, you know, that's the other thing. Who else is going to have access to a lot of this information? And uh, lots of people are. Yeah, and that's when people are pointing to the UK experience, which was truly more of experimental uh, in nature, but it was found that some data had been mined and then on-sold to insurance. In, in summary, <laughs> we it's going to be a wait and see, right? October 15, I did ask all my students this week um, what they knew about it, and... There, there's. I guess the way that I'd synthesise their responses was, yeah, they'd heard it come across the news and they'd kind of decided that it didn't matter to them. Hmm. You know, kind of like an ambivalence. So if that ambivalence is anyway reflected amongst the community, other than people who are probably currently actively engaged with the with the health sector. I, I think, though, the, the concern is that the people who stand to... If, if the system isn't great, the people who stand to suffer are the people who are, least, who are information poor yeah. and, the, and the most vulnerable people in our communities rather than, rather than people who know it, uh, who, who've heard what's going on. Three Triple R. Triple R is where you are. You're listening to Radiotherapy with Dr Sharma, Hawkeye and Panel Beta. And we're very, very happy to welcome into the studio our first guest of the morning, Associate Professor Petra Steger from Deakin University. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Triple R. Thank you. Very excited to be here. <laughs> um, let's just start with a question we often ask our, our researcher guests is what got you interested in the area that you're currently interested in? So first tell us what it is mm-hmm. and then and then what drew you into that accident or plan 
plan, yeah. actually. Yeah. So I've um, been interested in um, the impact of alcohol, uh, cigarettes, drugs on human behaviour and the brain for decades now. Um, I, I find it fascinating and... I think that one of the things that um, really drew me to it was the idea that we, you know, we can enjoy small amounts of alcohol, but at times um, when it becomes excessive, um, really problematic things sort of happen and people, it happens gradually. You know, people don't realise it as it sneaks up on them. And so I spent a lot of time initially, uh, you know, thinking about the sort of impacts that that has on society and, you know, the individual... And then I thought, okay, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to work in um, research and develop interventions. And so that's what I have been doing. And you're, if we're looking for the strict discipline, it's psychology? Yep. Is, is that where you're at? Yep. yep. So you're looking at the behavioural consequences of alcohol use? And emotional um, and and family and social. So probably all of them, really, uh, not not just um, behavioural. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's... A really fascinating field, and when we talk about things like behavior and emotions, alcohol is a very widely used mm. drug. Mm. If we can kind of call it that, with this incredible burden uh, of disease, so it's certainly something that we see in, in general practice a lot. Yeah. And yet, it's not it's not often kind of perceived in that way because it's such a normalized mm. uh, you know, a, a chemical to, to kind of have in our lives. And I guess part of the challenge is that yeah, there are, I guess, you know, safe levels that people can kind of en- yep. enjoy. So it's, it, it becomes very difficult for people to see this thing that's kind of part of their lives that can actually you know, pose these incredible kind of risks. Has that, has that been... Like a, has that formed any part of your research in terms of people's perception uh, of it? Yes. like um, So some of my students look at things like, for example, um, uh, young people's understanding of, of drinking guidelines and safe... Um, drinking, so uh, so clearly that is um, often driven by your peers. So if your peers um, drink a lot, then you tend to think that um, safe guidelines are higher. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? So you you, you tend to sort of um, model yourself around the, peop- the people that um, who are, who you might be drinking with, and that becomes an issue if. If you've got people who are drinking a lot because of um, all sorts of stress or trauma backgrounds or because of you know it's normalised in their family environment, then other people coming into that peer group also end up sort of drinking at that level, even though in a way they're not drinking for the same reasons. So, uh, so I have a student of mine. I find motivation for drinking really interesting mm. um, because some people are motivated to drink because of peer sort of engagement, just having fun. Other people are motivated to drink to cope. So because they're feeling anxious, they're depressed, they're, you know, something bad's happened. Or then you get the third group, sorry, stop me when you... (laughs) (laughs) ..who it becomes habit. And that's probably more where the app is um, focused on because it's, you know, you can't... um, you know, this saying, oh, there's an app for that. You know, mm. there isn't an app that's going to help major psychological issues that are beyond um, 
you know, sort of basic issues, okay. you know, self-monitoring or whatever. An app is going to be able to be helpful when it's a habit. So just um, set up for us yep. the background to mm-hmm. getting to the app. So mm-hmm. got a good mm-hmm. sense of the research area. Then yep. what um, started bringing consideration of app as a form of support? So um, we've had smartphone health-related apps now for about eight to nine years. Um, and there's just a plethora of them now. I mean, there's sort of thousands of them out there. And, of course, unfortunately, a lot of them haven't been evaluated, which... A um, lot of them are default apps on the phone that you get. Like, mm, I happen to have an Android. Yes. And there's an Android app preloaded yes. um, that's asking me to import a lot of data and yes, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so we're, we're currently looking at doing a review that looks at the evalu- evaluations of all the alcohol and drug-related smartphone apps. So, if you... In a few months' time, if you want to hear about it, I'll have uh-huh. to come back. Because my concern is that it is uh, there isn't a lot of evaluation, and so people might be just using apps, and you know they're not really sort of particularly helpful. Which is why, you know, we want to evaluate this one quite um, rigorously. Just before we talk about the specific specifics of yours, can can any of these apps be harmful? Like, it makes sense that you would want to investigate and interrogate them to see if they're beneficial. But if somebody's logging their drinking habits um, into the, you know, the um, the generic app that comes with their phone, um, they're probably doing it with some motivation to start understanding their behaviours, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So can that go wrong? Look, I think self-monitoring in itself is a very effective way. Like we have sort of the Fitbits monitoring how many steps we take, um, you know, and so self-monitoring of your drinking is actually an effective way of managing because you become aware of, oh, actually, I'm drinking a bit more than I thought and, oh, actually, I'm drinking on Fridays with this group of friends but when I go out with another group, I don't. So you can... We have had... um, We did... Um, have a self-monitoring app where people found that really, really effective. So, yeah, I don't think it's harmful. It's more just it might not be enough for sustainable change, long-term change. Okay. Uh, Where where does an app fit into kind of any any model of change? You know, are are people who most need help, who need help most uh, going to access an app? It's a really good question and I think we're very early on in the piece around that sort of work. I mean, I think there's been an excitement about apps because of the reach, you know, that you one of the things with um, intervention, you know, interventions that can help people reduce drinking is that if you live in regional, regional or rural areas, you have much less access to health services around that. If you're feeling uncomfortable or embarrassed about asking for help around alcohol, um, an app can be helpful because it's anonymous etc so i think there's a, a been a real excitement about that from the public health perspective because we could have a much broader reach hmm. so tell us about the app itself what, what are the what distinguishes it from any of those generic ones that we've just been referring to of course we think it's brilliant yes <laughs> no doubt <laughs> <laughs> Given it, well, uh, it took 15 months yeah, and right. nearly so, killed me to develop it. So yes. it's been 15 months in the making. <laughs> yes. But you're with a project group on this? Yes. Yep. yes. Okay. So there's a group of um, people who've had app-based experience <coughs> before and also um, stats advisors, clinical advisors 
and obviously myself sort of um, leading that. So we there has been a big team of us and we've piloted it a number of times. So the really when you say what's different, so it's more than self-monitoring. So what we wanted to do is um, develop... Uh, it's one of my concerns um, about self-monitoring is that it might only be effective for as long as you self-monitor. And we have a little bit of evidence around that, even with the Fitbit stuff, that people, when they stop, you know, counting the steps, that they reduce, they, you know, stop stepping, if you know what I mean. So one of the things about the app is that it's got a a psychological component to it, which is quite hard to deliver in an app. So we're not, you know, uh, we really want to test whether it can do that. But it's around being able to identify your high-risk situations and sort of go, okay, here are a list of uh, high-risk that we know uh, situations where people might um, drink excessively. Mm. Which ones are the ones that are most problematic for you? And and then choose the strategies you think are going to work best for you. And then we have... uh, So it's an eight-week program, so it's not you know, something you can just do for a couple of minutes and mm. that's it. And it, it does require, you know, four or five minutes a day for eight weeks, which it's not a lot, but sometimes people might do that for sure. a few days and then stop. Does it begin with a consultation with a, a medical professional? No, no. It, it, we wanted to... You do have apps that, are, that have links to, you know, um, coaching and all sorts of... But we wanted to have a standalone app so that it could be delivered anywhere cost-effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does have a, a, a video of me to begin with next to a green plant. Um, so... Yeah. <laughs> <and> <laughs> is, that, is, is that meant to mean something? Yeah, well, I just thought, oh, well, you know, sort of relaxing, calming, you know. Um, so, so anyway, so I described the stages. So there's like three stages, which the first is a self-monitoring um, stage and then, then there's the um, intervention where you develop your strategies and then you... Um, so that's three-week stage and then the last four weeks is where you practice and maintain. Because habit changes takes time. Um, you know, there is some data to show it that takes between sort of 50 to 80 times of doing something different before it becomes um, a habit change. So we uh, we really do uh, suggest that people, if they want to do the trial, and it is a trial, that you... Um, and that you just... alcoholapp.org.au and you uh, sign up and... Um, Hopefully it'll be really helpful. Um, but obviously it's for people who drink at a risky level but not people who are highly dependent. You know, if you've mm-hmm. got a... You would see them coming into your practice. You know, if you're someone who has to drink every day and excessively, you, um, you'd you need more than an app. You'd need some sort of consultation as well to make sure that you're safe and not um, unwell. Mm. So you mentioned like it's about five minutes a day. What mm-hmm. what happens in those five minutes? I, I'm making some assumptions here. I'm logging how much I've drunk. Yeah. Am, am I, what other information am I adding? Am I adding things like how I feel? Um, not uh, necessarily. You're, you're, uh, we, we're trying to... We, also, we don't ask people's names. We want to make it as anonymous as possible. Um, the, the data is sort of completely confidential. So, you know, given what you were talking yeah. about earlier on, <laughs> yes. um, we're really very, very uh, careful about that. So there's no date of birth, no names, um, you know, anything like that. 
but so you you identify your high risk situations, and then so you're right, you self monitor. You say, oh, this is how many drinks I had um, yesterday. Then you you practice. You do this sort of what we call um, a memorizer and visualizer. So you actually practice yourself with the new strategy in mind. So you might say, so you know, people have offered you a drink at, um, and you've already had three or four drinks and you want to stop but you're embarrassed okay so you say oh actually um tomorrow morning I'm going to get up really early so I won't do that mate it's if that's okay and so that's sort of like a and people go oh yeah yeah yeah, okay sure you know whereas if you say oh I'm you know I'm on my um uh, alcohol app replace it and it's told me I can't drink you know like this you're hardly you know going to make friends so that's part of what you do is you then say how did I use the strategy how helpful was it and you practice it Visualizing it, uh, and is there is there going to be any uh, interaction with the researchers or with uh, with a human through that eight week period, or is this is the is the whole goal that it's purely the app? Um, so the the interactions are, I guess, watching the videos. Um, so I have there's three videos to describe the app, and then the interaction is with the app. So we try and personalize. I try to make the app a bit. Like it was your friend today, you know. Hi, how are you? Um, you know, how did how many drinks did you have yesterday? Have you practiced your strategies? Have you found that? So Got there it, is a personal aspect to it, mm. but no, there's no person that you uh, get to speak to. Mm. Um, yep. I mean, that's kind of the, the entire appeal of uh, an app-based approach, which is. For some people, it's very difficult to make that jump of seeing another human, mm. Mm. and uh, it you know really formalizes, medicalizes uh, things. And if that's the barrier that's holding them back from accessing those uh, help in, in that way, well, that's the point of difference of an app. So you know, I guess that's a strength. Mm. Just and, oh, sorry, well, just following on from that, um, I think what's really important too is that. Sometimes, like I've got another student who who's been looking at a text-based um, intervention, and one of the uh, things that it was really we noticed is that it increased help-seeking behaviour. So it didn't it made a little bit of difference in drop of alcohol, but what was really important is that part of the um, intervention meant that they went and spoke to a GP or they went and sought some help that was in addition to that. So some of this, you're right, some of it might be that. Um, it, it raises awareness, it gets them sort of uh, thinking about it and you might be more likely to say, oh, you know, when you go, oh, I've been looking at this app and I think I do drink a bit much, you know, is there anything else I can do? So the more we can talk about these things and raise awareness, the more we might be able to bring society's general alcohol levels down. Thanks, Petra. We're coming to a close. Just one last question. Sure. Is there something magical about eight weeks? Um not necessarily. Uh, the, the most interventions that you do, like face-to-face interventions that uh, we recommend, go somewhere between six to ten weeks. Uh-huh. So, um, so that's partly what what that's um, reason for that. Also, it's just my need, my love of symmetry. Yes. So, there's right. four weeks, which is the intervention yep. um, part. So, the one week, uh, you know, self-monitoring, then the three week um, actual training and then the four week of sustaining sort of, sort gotcha. of matched oh. so yeah but eight weeks you do need 
to have a length of time for behaviour change. It's not something... You know how on the 1st of January everyone says, oh, I'm going to exercise three times a week? and then by, that. Yeah, <laughs> And then by the 10th of January you've gone, oh, maybe it's twice a week? And then by about the 30th of January you go, oh, well, OK, maybe the dog, I could walk the dog once a month. Yeah. You know? So that's why an app can actually, because it's a little reminder, pops up, oh, God, yeah, that's right, I better mm. do this, you know. I was just going to reflect that the, you know, the number eight, you know, it fits the rule of the magic numbers of medicine. And uh, in my area, we think about antibiotic prescriptions almost yep. always prescribed in one at, for one day, three days, five days, seven days. Okay. So odd numbers there. Once you go over seven days, almost exclusively two weeks, four weeks, six weeks, eight <laughs> weeks, you'll never see a course of antibiotics for five weeks, <laughs> yeah. three weeks, yeah. almost never. Uh, yes, so I yeah. think I think there's there's something very strange going on there. Pedro, it's been wonderful having you in and hearing about the app. Are you still looking for participants? And you yes. want to put um, yep. some information to wear on where people can find yeah, it? Yeah, thank you. So, um, as I said, it's a trial, so it it, it um, you can't just uh, download it from iTunes or Android. You actually have to go on to alcoholapp.org.au. So that's alcoholapp.org.au. And um, and then you uh, there's some screening questions first of all to see if you're eligible. There's some uh, minor criteria, and then um, if you are, then you can download the app, and then you're part of the trial. Um, so yep. Brilliant, brilliant. Excellent. Thanks very much for your time and coming My in on a, on a on a Sunday morning. It's very much appreciated. My pleasure. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, welcome back to Radiotherapy. This is Triple R. Uh, we uh, so you may have read something about uh, something about Africans and South Sudanese uh, in the newspapers over the last few weeks. A uh, uh, whole lot of pretty ugly stories, really. Um, uh, we read some wonderful, wonderful uh, kind of we. Uh, some wonderful words from some really great members of the South Sudanese community, and I noticed lawyers and criminologists and uh, and a whole bunch of other really interesting people kind of carrying on the tradition of uh, of new immigrants to Australia contributing uh, disproportionately to service sectors uh, and uh, academic work. Um, but I didn't see a lot of people involved in healthcare and health work and uh, and um, and medical science. Although I know that there are many uh, uh, many uh, African and South Sudanese involved uh, involved in in that work. Uh, of course, I'm using the word Africans in the same way as uh, in the same way as I think uh, you know we describe Greeks and you know and others in Melbourne. Uh, despite the fact that you know, what we're really talking about is Australians who were you know whose parents came from Greece, uh, Australians whose parents came from South Sudan, for instance. Um, or Australians who came from South Sudan themselves, and so we. I went out there and I asked a lawyer actually uh, to if, if he knew any uh, if he knew any people in uh, medical science, and and he uh, put me on to someone wonderful, and that uh, is Aya Madut, who is in the studio today uh, with her sister Wilma, uh, Wilma Madut as well, and. Um, AA has an incredible story that uh, she started telling me the other day. Um, so I'm, I'm going to ask her to, to begin at the beginning uh, and, and tell us your story, AA. Oh, thanks. Thanks, everyone, for having me in the studio. I mean, I'll start by saying, I guess, no, I mean, any publicity can be positive pu- publicity. So, I mean, this is, I guess, because of the headlines, African gangs. That's why I'm in the studio today. 
as you know part of the Australian community and and as Josh said um, I'm an Australian who's um, who who migrated from South Sudan but I am a part of this community and so I guess my story starts from when I arrived here which was 14 years ago and um, since I arrived in the last 14 years I've had so many amazing opportunities I've grown so much I've met some amazing people and so I mean my story begins from um, my arrival I then got into because I was always passionate about science and so in my high school I was able to do the three you know chemistry biology and physics as well and so when I came um, I think um, admissions had already gone through so I didn't have an opportunity to apply to any university and um, then someone got me onto um, the um, TAFE courses and they told me about the TAFE courses another great opportunity so I got t- into the diploma of uh, pathology and so once I, that was a two-year course and I was then able to go ahead and enroll in um, a medical science degree, a bachelor's, and that, you know, was an amazing experience as well. And so from then on, I worked in pathology for a few years um, and then went on to um, get involved in um, in medical research. So I've been, I've spent the last six years um, doing research in respiratory medicine, so a lot of asthma, cystic fibrosis, but mainly focused in um, sleep sleep research and uh, sleep apnea and so I mean you know and my my journey continues I guess um so thanks AA um so you mentioned the the TAFE course how long was that the TAFE course the diploma was about two years okay and and then you went on to work in to work in pathology and so what does that mean day to day uh pathology I was a lab technician so I worked we did you know uh, blood testing so I did a lot of blood collections to begin with and I was also involved in the lab work and so that was within a hospital setting okay so the patients got their blood tests or their urine or whatever else and that got collected sent to the lab and you were one of the people working to to deliver results the results yes to 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 the doctors got it um and and where were you doing that was that i interestingly enough i did that in orange which was which is about three hours (laughs) (laughs) so i did i did spend some time in the country which was an um, absolutely amazing experience yeah, what, what was so great about that or so interesting I, about that? Inter- because initially I think um, deep down I thought three hours away from Sydney, there's no way people know about um, or I would find any immigrants. Yep. And so I think my first thought was how do I, how am I going to cope, you know, uh, blending in with people and, you know, going about my everyday life. But it was just... It's interesting enough that even people that haven't come in contact with immigrants were so receptive. And I think I've had the best experience mm. in the country more than I've had in the city. Wow. What yeah. do you put that down to? I think they were just intrigued. They were interested to know about my story. And it was just more about, you know, I guess to me, I felt like that's where I felt more Australian. Right. Yeah. I was, it was very inclusive. Do you, uh, don't want to put words into your mouth, but the way that you're saying that, it makes me think that maybe the people you came across in 
orange compared to the people, say, in Melbourne, um, they weren't assuming they knew you, whereas no. maybe in the city people are assuming they know not at all, yeah. exactly. And and usually um, even like on the streets of, um, you know, Orange, people would just approach you and say hello and say, oh, you know, I've never seen a South Sudanese person. You know, what's, you know, or I mean, I, I don't know of many Africans. Right. You know, where are you from? And please tell me because I've never traveled or I've never been to, yeah, to Africa. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it, when people don't have a box they can put you in you get to define yourself and uh, i've certainly had that experience working in rural australia uh, as as well so uh if it's not obvious from (laughs) the radio waves uh, (laughs) i'm uh, i was not born in this country and uh so i was born in india i've certainly had those experiences of traveling rural and having you know those all those kind of classic uh, questions of you know your English is very good and where yes. you're from, but from a genuine point of curiosity, they yes. want to connect yes. with you and something that I've really experienced in the country. I'm so glad to hear you've had a, a good experience. I had an amazing experience. <laughs> so not only um, an immigrant, not only from um, South Sudan, but you're also working in medicine and science. Yes. So that's another layer of uniqueness, perhaps in combination. Yes, that's correct, yes. I mean, these are all things that I am. I guess if you identify yourself, I just, I won't be able to just say I am Australian. I'm still South Sudanese as well because I'm affiliated with my community and, you know, I was born overseas. But I'm also, you know, I've interacted with people within the health profession and I've been involved for the last 10 years. Mm. And so that's also me, I guess. Is your family scientific or medically orientated? Not at all. No. <laughs> so how did it Most come of my family is involved in, uh, I guess, um, oh, mainly social science mm-hmm. and um, a little bit of business as well. Mm-hmm. So, and I think I was mainly the odd person out. <laughs> so this is really a self-made thing. I mean, for to have that kind of background, you yet go straight for the triple sciences and then uh, yeah. you know, in, in your TAFE you're doing pathology. This is really all kind of come from you, an it, identity you've crafted. Yes, yes. Um, and just before we go to a break, I want to know about the, the jump to research. So sitting in a lab looking at urine, blood, etc., giving results for, for doctors and others managing patients on the ward, from that to kind of answering big questions yes i mean my transition was um sort of um not something i went looking for i guess i was i was never um involved in um in sort of um, research aspect of science but i met one of my colleagues that had worked at um you know i worked in sydney and then she was talking about these amazing research she was involved in. And because she'd moved to Orange, um, because her partner was working within the police force, and I was planning to move back to Sydney. And so she said to me, you know, oh, there's this amazing opportunity that's happening at the moment. Maybe you could try apply for that. And so I looked it up and I got into it and it was saying sleep research. I had no idea what sleep research was or whether anyone studied sleep. And so when I looked into it, I then realised there was more into it than just, you know, it was attached to, you know, a respiratory um, disease. It's a respiratory disease as well. And so then I applied for it, got the opportunity, and then it all bloomed from there. 
You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Welcome back to Radiotherapy. Uh, we're with uh, A.A. Madut at the moment, uh, a wonderful South Sudanese medical scientist uh, in the studio with us today. Um, A.A. was telling us the story of uh, being in Orange as a, as a, as a hospital pathologist uh, or pathology, uh, pathology scientist uh, in the laboratory and uh, it reminded me of uh, the experience of Joel Fleischman in Sicily, Alaska in Northern Exposure. I think, uh, I think uh, your experience in Orange would probably make a good television show. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, A.A., you were telling me, me the other day about a, about a pretty, pretty frightening story, for me at least, about a, um, about a 12-year-old uh, who... Uh, 12-year-old... Uh, uh, it wasn't treated very well. Mm-hmm. Well, Josh, I guess <clears throat> this is one of the best things about um, being here today is that I guess I'm not an expert on social issues, of course, but if you do see an injustice like any other Australian, it would definitely... Um, it, the impacts on you as the onlooker as opposed to even the person experiencing the injustice. And so I was walking through a shopping centre. This is when I'd arrived because I've been living in Sydney for the past few years and then um, I moved to Melbourne and I was walking around the shopping centre and because South Sudanese, especially um, young males, are built, they're quite tall. I'm sure you've seen them. You know, a 12-year-old would be probably 5 foot 11 or 6 foot even. And so walking around the shopping centre and then this young boy had a school bag, he had a uniform on. So I imagined he was, you know, coming from school. And so he's going through the shopping centre and I think he was passing by the um, that particular shop. So he went inside and then came out. And then about three security guards rushed towards him and uh, one of them held his hand. And so you could see this boy in sort of shock and he's wondering what's happening and then they're asking him you know what are you doing what are you doing here or are you going to steal or something along the lines and so he's like oh he was so scared you could see he's shaking and he's like oh can you just call my mom please call my mom she just told me to wait here and just as an onlooker I it it brought me to tears because I thought if a 12 year old is not able to walk through the shopping center Mm -hmm. I mean and its impact on me, the labels on me is not an issue because I'm able to. I mean, I, I understand um, in terms of, you know, it's just the the overall label. But a 12-year-old won't understand what that means. And so when I sort of, I rushed to them and I'm like, what's happening? Is everything okay? And I'm like, um, is, are you okay? And he's like, no, I don't know. I was just walking. And then they came towards me. And I'm just waiting for my mom. And I told them to just call my mom. She's going to come and pick me up. And so I stayed with him. And then we um, contacted his um, his mom. And at that time, that point in time, he was not even able to understand what that meant. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so I think I mean, it just paints a whole different picture of the Australia that I know. What do you think's going on in situations like that? What's the what's the story? Do you think? I think it's just the stigmatization. It's just the vilification of you know young dark males that um, or you know tall males that walk in groups mm. or you know and the labeling of African gangs or you know South Sudanese gangs. And um, for a person like me, of course, a news headline like that, I'd do more research into it. 
But if you're talking about the wider, you know, Australians, there's people that might not have an opportunity to go into and to look deeper into it. They would just take it as it is. So any news headline would just be an interesting... Of course, it, it is capturing if you hear gangs and things mm. like that. And so um, people will believe what they see. And it's unfortunate because it's probably not what the, you know, the real truth is. Well, isn't it interesting to contrast before you were telling us about the interest of people in individual stories and those individual meetings and then and then the kind of mm. the individual real life consequences of the headlines and you know and people trying to score political points and and you've told us one um, kind of one individual story uh, of, of, of a consequence for a young child you, you tell me as well that you found things for you personally different in Melbourne compared to Sydney oh yes there's a very big difference in terms of you know just even the approach towards you, you know, going into shops and things like that, and you're looked at differently. And then you think, you I mean, you don't think much into it. And then after a few days, it starts to dawn on you. Because, you know, in Sydney, you're walking around, you know, just a regular person walking in the shopping centre doing your own thing. Whereas in Melbourne, it's totally different. Yeah. Yeah, totally different. I've only been here for a year yeah. I mean, that just has so much validity because you're someone who's had positive experiences in this um, country and you're, you you sound very very proud of that, as, uh, you, as you should, and yet you know, this is real, you know, the, yeah. the, the fact that you can contrast, you know, to your past or to another city, then that, you know, and that, that's, a, that's a huge concern for us in Melbourne then. Yeah, yeah. So we're running out of time and it's really important that these stories get told. I wonder if you can leave us with some cause of optimism. Do you, do, do you think in spite of these um, interactions and these individual stories that there's still reason to believe that, um, that we can be cohesive? Oh, oh, yes. I mean, yesterday we were part of uh, a demonstration um, uh, around Channel 7. We um, partook in a protest, enough is enough. And so um, just looking at the percentage of the Australians, the white Australians that were there, compared to, you know, the Africans, it was almost, you know, 60, 40. Yeah, right. To me, that's an amazing... It just it validates the fact that Australia is still Australia. Yeah. It's just the few that taint a picture, the, you know, and it should not be uh, tolerated. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.